Hola. So I think <clears throat> we'll finish this chapter today on the stage of generation. There's not much new in the remaining few pages, so it's more of a summing up. But again, as I like to do, and I've done so many times already, sometimes zooming in, really going in on detail, really trying to be very precise, and then sometimes really going with the wide-angle lens, big picture. This whole theme of developing pure vision, uh, both looking outwards as well as looking inwards, but doing it in a way that's real, that's not just sugarcoating reality, not pretense, not silly, not delusional. It's a fine line, that's for sure. Not easy, but it is there. Of that I'm very confident, and I'm trying to illuminate that slender middle path as clearly as I can. Because it's really precious if you find it. It is exactly that, that, you know, that pure vision rooted in bodhicitta, with a view of emptiness, with a divine pride, with the affirmation of Buddha nature. It's that that collapses what could be in a very, very long path, many, many lifetimes, eons, into very short times. So it can't be easy, otherwise it, it, the, we wouldn't do anything else. Everybody would just practice that. But this theme, which has been, you know, been taught for centuries and centuries, um, I think probably has never been more needed or more urgent, perhaps in some ways, even for some people anyway, indispensable than it is right now. The world presses in. The theme that keeps on coming up uh, is a phrase that I quote just everywhere all over the world from William James, for the moment what we attend to is reality. For the moment, what we attend to is reality. That's what we take to be real, what we are attending to. And so here we are living in a world that many, many Buddhists, include, very much including myself, would agree this is a world that is, you know, there's a great deal of degeneration, a lot of, yeah, a lot of generation in many, many ways, very corrupt in many ways, uh, very antithetical to Dharma in many, many ways. And who needs to elaborate? It's either clear or it's not clear. I'm not going to try to make a case for that. But that just means, of course, and it's always been true, it's just hard to practice when the environment in which one is seeking to practice is really going in the opposite direction. I mean, really antithetical in so many ways. The way people talk, the type of entertainment, the type of work, the pace of life, the type of politics, the type of worldview, it's just one thing after another. And living in a world where mental afflictions aren't even regarded as mental afflictions. That's pretty sad. But they're not. Mental anger. Well, it's just human condition. And, and in fact, it's a positive thing. And this constructive anger, you know, we really need anger. This is we are biologically adapted to have anger. It must be a good thing. It's very useful. Just, you know, keep it under control. Like having a rabid dog in your house. And just keep it under control. <laughs> but it must be there for a reason. You know. And the mental affliction of craving and attachment, not desire. I think we've cleared that one up but the mental affliction of craving hyphen attachment. Not even regarded as a problem. Just normal. Just normal. It's only when it's really excessive that it's considered, oh, maybe you should slack, you know, taper off a little bit on that. And let alone delusion. So what to do with that? There's no reason to kind of elaborate. I think what I'm saying is pretty obvious. But if we go, if to be simply practicing in that milieu, in that context, within that framework, that's going to be really tough because, of course, it's not just out there. We don't have a sharp, nice titanium wall between ourselves subjectively over here and the rest of the world out there. We can hermetically seal ourselves off from these degenerate degenerations in our environment. There's no such thing. We're totally entangled, right? I mean, all we have to do is open our eyes and then the world's rushing in and it's coming into our minds, right? So what we attend to becomes our reality. What we, attend, what we attend to becomes empowered. Becomes empowered. So let's just take this 21st century and then we'll go deeper and then we'll go right to the practice and it will be all, I think, seamless. 21st century. We've been right, running an experiment ourselves since the time of Thomas Huxley, Charles Darwin, Karl Marx. Incredibly influential people and this has been about 150 years, just trying this on for size. How will humanity do if 
on a very mega level, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about hundreds of millions and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people on the planet, adopt a worldview that was like a really rare disease only two or three hundred years ago. And that's materialism. Very rare. You show me a society 200 years ago that, oh yeah, we, we wouldn't find it. Nowhere. Nowhere. But the last 150 years or so, now it's become a world domination. Just exactly what Thomas Huxley wanted. He said, this is the church scientific, we're looking for world domination. What did Karl, Karl Marx seek for? The abolition of religion, and this will supplant it. Dialectical materialism. So they won. I mean, it's not over yet, but really, I mean, look around. It's not only in the Soviet Union, which, you know, is no longer communist per se. Chi communist China, well, kind of communist, kind of like overwhelmingly capitalistic. No, their great conquest really was in the capitalistic world. Europe, America, and so forth. They won. Dominates education, dominates the media, dominates government policy, dominates academia. They won. They, they got what they wanted. And of course, in this last 150 years, we've seen the greatest decimation of the natural environment and the most ghastly wars in the history of humanity. So just pausing there, I think I, sh I should really stop referring to materialism as bullshit, because it's so deprecating to bulls. <laughs> and to bullshit itself. Bullshit is very good stuff. You I mean, put it on your fields. <laughs> There's a lot of value in bullshit. It's useful. Ask any farmer, gardener, please bring in more bullshit. My garden needs more mull, you know. And t tell me the bull that is a materialist. I think you will not find even one. So I think, you know, if I were mem representing the bull lobby, I'd say, Alan, you have to cut that out. We may sue you. <laughs> you know, this is really inappropriate speech on your part. You know, keep us out of it. Because we bulls and our happy little manure here, we had nothing to do with your problems, so quit, quit alluding to us. So I think there's a much nicer word. I mean, toxic waste is pretty close, but I think the Germans have a very nice term. Where's Suzanne? Suzanne, where's Suzanne? There's Suzanne. Quatsch. Quatsch. How would you translate it? Your English is perfect. Quatsch. Nonsense. That's a nice word. Nonsense. It's like, but, it, but quatsch sounds so much better than nonsense. <laughs> This is such quatsch. It's just so blurred, but it's really quatsch. <laughs> now that sounds nicer, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. If you want to translate it, toxic waste will also do, but quatsch sounds nicer. And so it's pressing in where we're objectifying everything, what we're tending to, we empower. And we're empowering the physical, we're empowering the objective. We're reducing human existence to objective, reducing human existence, the mind, to something objective. And I just reflected on this, you know, just thoughts coming at my meditation. But if we take anyone, I'll take Hosa. Imagine this, that I really take this seriously, that Hosa is nothing more than all the molecules in her body. That's all there is. There's nothing else besides that. And that's what they say. You are a body most centrally the brain, but that's it, and there's nothing more to you than that. Okay, now this is very widespread. This is not some crazy idea if you wacko believe. This is really widespread, and it's saturating the medical profession, National Institute of Mental Health, and so forth. It's really... Now consider that we really take that seriously. This means that if I could be a super doctor, and I would never ask Jose to say a single thing, just be quiet, we don't need to hear anything you have to say, uh, and I will just now do this thorough scan of every molecule in her body. And I'll know everything about every molecule, every chemical, every electrical impulse, and from the top of her head right down to her toenails. And there's no part that I've missed. And I've thoroughly understood every molecule, every interrelationship of matter and energy in her body. And I finished. <laughs> scan is finished. I'll now know everything there is to know about Rosa, that is worth knowing. And what quatsch? What quatsch? How can anybody think that and not be completely delusional? But that's what we're getting in the media all the time. So what to do? I'm finished. What to do? Because that's reality. <laughs> I just had to get that point about de denigrating the bulls because I thought that was just too cool. <laughs> Couldn't leave that out. Just, just, I had to say what to do? 
because it's pressing in. This is the 21st century. It's pressing in. It's everywhere. The media, the, the education your children are getting, it's in the universities. It's everywhere. It's pressing in, pressing, pressing in. Okay. Well, one thing we can do is go on eight-week retreats. <laughs> Where it's okay to ridicule materialism while outside it's being celebrated as, you know, God's own truth. So we can take a retreat from it for a while. That's good. Breathe easy by people who are, you know, have sensible ideas, who are striving for, cultivating eudaimonia. That's really a good idea. Just get a, a little break from modernity, a break from the 21st century, to go to a place which is practicing, frankly, pretty timeless dharma. That's good. But then, of course, when we leave here, or people listening by podcast, you're probably living in a context where you're interfacing a lot with this modern world. What to do then, except for, you know, be saving up your money for the next retreat? <laughs> And uh, we have to be more clever than that. We can't just you know, be turning our pursuit of dharma into one more form of escapism. And it's big. So it's kind of like a David and Goliath kind of thing here. Our spiritual practice is like a David. And the Goliath of the world is pressing in from all sides. Consumerism, hedonism, materialism, reductionism, violence, greed, social injustice. It's rampant everywhere. So what to do? Pure vision from the inside. Pure vision from the inside. Just we need to start there, because if the rot, if the toxic waste has gotten right to our core, where we feel right at our core, we're screwed up. Then you have no base. You have no basis. You have no camp. You have no place. You're 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 hopeless, right? So you have to have a place. And you can call it your substrate. You can call it the stillness of your awareness. You can call it Buddha nature. You can call it the Holy Spirit within. I mean, find any word that works for you. But having a place, a sanctuary, a refuge, a place of trust, a place that is not part of this zeitgeist, this milieu, this context, because it is pretty darn corrupt, in some ways unprecedentedly so, and catastrophically so. Doing that. But from that, I think, again, if we try to just push back, if we reify ourselves, we reify the world around us, we reify materialism as some great big entity out there, this looks like a losing battle to me. Kind of like, okay, like, you know, who's going to, okay, world, push against me, I'll push against you, and let's see who wins. It's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. So we have to be cleverer than that. We can't do this with a brute force. We have to be cleverer than that. And to realize all these appearances are empty of inherent nature, that's a big step. Whatever I think about myself, empty of inherent nature, that's a big step. Dissolve all into emptiness. Whether you're living in 16th century Tibet, in 8th century India, or 21st century Manhattan, you know, whatever it is, it's all equally empty. And this is not an escapism, this is actually a deeper insight than simply reifying everything, which is like a, a, long, a long lucid dream. So bringing that, you know, whatever is appearing in this materialistic world, attending to it and see happily all the appearances themselves are non-material. All the information we're getting is non-material. All the appearances of ourselves are non-material. All that is material is simply a conceptual designation. We can stop reifying it. We can deconstruct it, dissolve into the emptiness, and come out with pure vision. I think we need to create sacred space. That's what, it, that's what this is really all about. It's creating sacred space. And even if that space is just about one foot or one, you know, one meter di- diameter around yourself, a sacred space where you've slipped out of this space-time mess into a space that's pristine, that's pure, and it's not imaginary. If it's imaginary, then we're just playing and then it's just escapism all over again. But no, if one really brings understanding to this, these appearances are empty. The 21st century is empty of inherent nature. I myself, as a person in it, empty of inherent nature. Whatever I think about myself, empty of inherent nature. Dissolve it all, dissolve it all, dissolve it all into that emptiness, non-dual from Buddha nature. So your intelligence gets you there, and what's waiting for you is your intuition. With intelligence, you can deconstruct that which is reified. You have to just be smart. Really just you know, get the tools of Nagarjuna and so forth, and push your intelligence all the way through, and you can deconstruct the world, and you know it's true. And then what's waiting for you that you don't get with sheer intellect, but you get from your own intuition, your own Buddha nature, is the affirmation of Buddha nature. That 
that voice within that says yes. With no reasoning and no evidence, it's rikpa, affirming rikpa. Dissolve the 21st century into emptiness. Out of emptiness arise a pure vision and create a sacred space. And then it doesn't matter whether you're in Tibet or you're in Manhattan in the 21st century or the 15th century, because you've cut through it. So that's, that's my response to the 21st century. What we attend to is our reality, and if we're attending to, tending to awareness, attending to dharma, attending to the seeds of eudaimonia, that becomes real. And the rest simply consists of cooperative conditions that may or may not catalyze this or that. So the world around us is empowering the material and disempowering the mind, even to the point of just astonishing absurdity. By intelligent people saying consciousness doesn't exist at all. Intelligent people saying subjective experience doesn't exist. Introspection doesn't exist. All of your experience is illusory. And I just thought of four people who are brilliant and mainstream and highly educated, and they're, and they're, they're getting lots of press. And did you hear the insanity of what I just said? The craziness, the sheer... I mean, you take all the nonsense that religious fundamentalists have said through history, it doesn't match what I just said. Consciousness doesn't exist? Tell me the religious fundamentalist who says that. Subjective experience doesn't exist. Introspection doesn't exist. This is really, this is over the, over the top. Over the top. To the point of like, you've got to be kidding. You didn't really say that. And yes, they did. Yes, they did. It is the absolute disempowerment of the individual, the absolute disempowerment of the mind. It's getting to the children, it's getting to society. Anything wrong with your mind, you know what to do. Find the drug. And that's it for everything. You want to be happy? Find the drug. Everything. You have a mental problem? Find the drug. If it's not a drug, find something that's going to change your brain waves, change the chemical composition of your brain, because that's what's really going on, right? So it's the radical empowerment of a reified physical universe that doesn't exist in the first place, and the radical disempowerment of the mind, which is the very wellspring of eudaimonia, and the home, the bed, the context of our Buddha nature. So. We just can't practice in that context with any robustness that has longevity to it, so dissolve it. Now let's go out of the 21st century into the bigger picture. Karma. Karma is pressing in. And I'm just speaking Buddhist worldview. Karma presses in. Karma happens to us. Karma ripens. It ripens in the types of moods and thoughts that come up. It ripens in our health. It ripens in our environment. It ripens in the way other people engage with us, with the economy, the surrounding environment, environmental degradation. From another perspective, this is karma ripening. Virtually all Tibetans, I think everyone that I know, when they speak of the, the genocide that took place in Tibet, they say this was karma ripening. It was our karma ripening, and we have to deal with it. I'm sure not all Tibetans believe that, but the vast majority do. And they have dealt with it in remarkable ways. Yeah. So, karma happens. Karma happens. Karma's happening from day to day. We're, accu- we're accumulating karma, and we're experiencing from day to day the ripening of karma. Ripening of karma. And if that's all we're dealing with, that's going to be a tough uphill walk, too. That's going to be a steep climb. Just dealing in that world and reifying it taking it to be real, say, now let's roll up our sleeves, let's, pra- let's practice shamatha, let's practice vipassana. That's going to be really tough. Without pure vision, I think, really tough. Because these are degenerate times, and we are the sentient beings, we are the sentient beings, I'm one of the sentient beings, whose karma is ripening in this degenerate time. It's not like I'm a victim of other people. I'm in the center of my universe. I am in my own universe. If it's degenerate, you know, look who did it. My karma manifesting. But there's something really powerful here. And that is the blessings of the Buddha. This is a name. I'm now speaking to your Buddha nature. I'm not insulting your intelligence, but I'm speaking to a deeper dimension. The blessings of Buddha nature, the blessings of Dharmakaya, are not contingent upon your good and bad karma. In other words, the Buddhas are not waiting and saying, well, I'd really love to offer my blessings, but you know, your karma just doesn't quite cut it but be more virtuous and get back to me. <laughs> then who needs Buddhas? They're just Wall Street bokers. 
you know, so what are you going to pay me for my, my blessing? I got incredible blessings here, but what, what do you got? <laughs> Body, speech, and mind? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Your merit? You know, yeah, well, that's just what I needed. Your merit. <laughs> we got nothing to offer, really. Right? But if we really go deep here, why not? That's what we're here for. We're here for Mahamudra. There's nothing deeper than that. Then the blessings of the Buddha are pressing in. The blessing of the Buddhas of the three times and the ten directions are pressing in at all times homogeneously. It doesn't come with a big surge when you start making prayers or we purify our minds and then tapers off when we become more hedonic. That's what we do. But the blessings of the Buddha, no. I mean, this is the whole thing of being a Buddha is you don't have good days and bad days. You don't take, well, things really, I got this big surge of compassion yesterday, but today not so much. I got pooped, I got dharma out. you know. <laughs> Buddhists <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> nice thing about being a Buddha, you know. And so there it is. We'll start taking that seriously. And that is whatever our karma is, and it varies from, from life to life to life, from one part of a life to another part of a life. It's what the current, the momentum we're bringing in from past lives. Of course, we're also accumulating karma from day to day. But in the midst of that, there's Buddha nature. That's not configured in karma. Rikma. There's the blessings of the Buddhas, the kindness, the blessings of the Guru, of the three jewels, of refuge. And none of that is contingent upon karma. There's a remarkable long passage in the Vajra essence. Really, it just makes, it keeps on saying, like, I think I got the message. Oh, I did get that. He keeps on saying it again and again and again. It's well into the text. Uh, and that is that whether you've lived your whole life practicing stage regeneration or your whole life being, you know, like a thief or something really disgusting, when you realize rikpa, it's even, there's no difference. There's no difference. When you realize rikpa, whatever your trajectory to get there, some people short, some people long, some people an enormous amount of virtue, some people, you know, they have some big conversion experience, something, some breakthrough. When you get there, it's all the same. And he says it again and again in so many different ways. Like, boy, you really want me to get this message, don't you? You know? So in other words, we don't earn our way. Is the practice prior to the realization of Rikpa irrelevant? Of course it's not. But the blessings of the Buddha do not, it's not calibrated. It's not calibrated. It's instantaneous and it is open. It's receptivity. And it cuts through karma. So pure vision, blessings. I think to be able to practice in the way His Holiness said is possible, to practice like Milarepa, to realize Milarepa in this world right now. I'm sure it's different for different people, so I'm not going to make some ridiculous general proclamation as if I know what's going on. But my sense is, I'll speak personally, I think really, to be able to draw the full benefit from the Dharma that we received, that we are receiving, that we're practicing, it's going to be the, the pure vision and slipping out of the reification of everything is going to be crucial. Slip into a sacred space. And the sacred space is what's left over. You don't have to create it. With your mind, you can't create it. Mind's not up to it. But the sacred space is there when we deconstruct the degeneration. Stop reifying it. Release it. Come to rest. And then with the power of faith, with the power of imagination, then we can invoke, with the blessings of the Buddha, create a sacred space, and we can live in that. And we can live in that for eight weeks as a community of 50 people, who will then go our separate ways. People listening by podcast, right here and now as you're listening, there's nothing to prevent you from creating a sacred space where you are, if you have a companion next to you listening, all the very well, that is a sacred space containing two, but one is enough, you know, and create that. And that's your space. And then it doesn't matter whether you're living in a very materialistic society, a corrupt society, it doesn't matter. Create your own space. So, what I'd like to do now then, we've gone through the sadhana, the Chenrezig sadhana twice. What I'd like to do now is have a, a silent session. So fly solo. Fly solo. If you'd like to have the text in front of you, so just kind of a refresher, the stages of the sadhana, you're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, the sadhana is so simple, really, 
that after you've read through it a couple of times, I think the salient points are not complicated. And just do it. See how that goes. So what I would suggest is settling, so I'm going to front load it just a little bit. But the text is there. There's even more, that, more to come, a little bit more that I'll read. But again, it's settling body, speech, and mind. It's refuge, bodhicitta. Releasing and then deconstructing. Do this thing. Whatever your body, your sense of identity, your mind, your environment, general society, the planet, and so forth. All constructed. All arising independence upon conceptual designation. Having no existence independent of conceptual designation, therefore, if the conceptual designation is rolled back. That doesn't go anywhere. Take away left, the right doesn't go anywhere. It's just not there anymore. Among the triad, the apprehender, the apprehension, and the apprehended, take away one, the other two don't go anywhere. They're just not there anymore. Right? Take away the conceptual designation. It didn't go anywhere. It's just not to be found. So go there. And the easiest way, I need easy. The easiest way. This whole notion of, your, of yourself as a sentient being. You know, I've, I've met with many of you now. Actually, pretty much all of you now. Almost all. Twice. You've spoken a lot about yourselves, which is invited. Spoken about your minds. Perfectly good. But yourselves that you're referring to? Because you, you know, we're all doing this. There's no criticism here whatsoever. But when we're saying, I this, I that, and my mind this, my mind, mind that. Have you ever checked to see what the referent is? <laughs> you know, the referent, you know, you. And my mind this, my mind that. Have you ever checked the referent? Is there really something there? That's the easiest one. The easiest one. Will the real sentient being please come forth? Not the body, I know the body. body could look just like that and be a Buddha's body. No, the real sentient being, no, the real sentient being, the one that's all screwed up, that one. Please come forth, I want to see you, I want to see you naked. Just, just you. Not that naked. <laughs> <laughs> just the sentient being, you. Just that one. <laughs> She's so much fun to tease. Just the sheer naked, raw, unelaborated, unadorned. Show me what you got. Yo, you, the sentient being. You, the one with all those mental addictions. Show me, show your face. Show, come out. Come on. Come on. What are you, shy? See this one. Start there. Relax. Release. And it is, in fact, return. Return to the stillness, return to the silence, return to the emptiness. Out of that, three, light, purification. Three, transform instantly. All of this in the spirit of play. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about how good you are at it. Don't worry about this or any. Just don't worry about anything. Just have fun. Just play with it. Transforming an Avalokiteshvara. Play with it. Paint it. If you can't paint it well, then just, I am Avalokiteshvara. Develop divine pride. Don't worry about it. And just imagine that you have that moon disk at your heart and the three syllable and the surrounding Omanipemehum. Just imagine that it's there. Even if you can't imagine it, imagine that it's there. That's enough. Enough. Good enough. And then Omanipemehum. Create your sacred space. Not just an empty space, create a sacred space. And that should keep you busy for 24 minutes. Okay. Please find a comfortable position. Oh, not so. So let's read the concluding section of the chapter. I'll give the oral transmission that I received from Gautra And so we're picking up here on page 57. And 
this is this is teachings from the Siddha Tsongbuba. 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 I've never heard of Siddha Tsongbuba. The Gyaka Dupshanabe. Tsongbuba. Also, no. And I checked in Google and I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it anywhere on the internet. So he's one of those Siddhas, probably a hidden yogi. Um, so he has to be very good. Most important, see what he says. And then we can infer him from what he says. It's faith in the Guru by way of the teaching. Remember that one? So here we are on page 57, we'll read. And then it's slowly wrapping up. The primary words of essential instructions of the Great Compassionate One. So it's a text which were presented by Vatsara Varahi, Dwaji uh, to the Siddha, Siddha Sombhupa. So these really sound once again like visionary teachings, very much like what Dujum uh, Ningba received from Padmasambhava. Well, here is this Siddha. Sompuva, and he clearly had a vision of Vajra Varahi, and she gave him these teachings. So, most importantly, let's simply look at the teachings, see whether, you know, let this teaching speak for themselves, without worrying too much about exactly who was he, where did he live, and so forth and so on. So here's, what, here's the words that he received. To achieve awakening in one lifetime and with one body. You must have str- strength of mind like this. Everyone else meditates on one yidam, or chosen deity, after another. Very common throughout the history of Tibet. Uh, Lots of initiations, lots of deities, lots of sadhanas, lots of commitments. So that's been going on a long time. Everyone else does that. That results in adopting and rejecting chosen deities, or yidams, so there will never come a time when they achieve cities. it's just kind of like trying out one, and that didn't work out so well. Try out this one. Oh, that one sounds pretty good. Oh, no, that no. Well, but this one could be. Oh, this one, you know. And just kind of going from one to the other, like tasting candy in a store. Atisha said the same thing a thousand years ago. So this has probably been going on a long time. So imagine all chosen deities as being included in your own body. So all those archetypal representations, none of them having inherent nature anyway. Imagine all of those, as we had in the visualization here, all of these forms of Avalokiteshvara coming in. Well, imagine all of them coming in, all of the aspects of the divine. I think it's said in Islam, I think, a thousand faces of God. I threw that, is that correct? A thousand names of God, a thousand names of God, yeah. Yeah, say, say again? 99. Oh, it's off by one. Uh huh. 99. So, there's a statement, and I'm sure I'm sure uh, Yekta is right on that point. Um, and my interpretation, and if you think it's wrong, do do just tell me. But when speaking of 99 names of the divine, what I suspect my interpretation would be that would be highlighting 99 facets of the one divine. You think that's that's good? Yeah. Infinite names, yeah. But 99 would be a short list, yeah. 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 <laughs> But in principle, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that Islam and Buddhism are the same, not at all. But uh, I do believe if you go deep enough, you're going to find some very meaningful common ground. And so this, but I would say this, now I'm back on, on firmer, firmer ground, Buddha Dharma, Vajrayana, these are all facets of one Dharmakaya, manifesting in a myriad of ways to serve the needs of myriad sentient beings, right? And so then just go for the essence, dissolve that into one. Wherever you live, so there's, there's your body. Imagine your body now. This is creating the sacred space, but not leaving your body behind, but transmuting it, seeing its empty nature, and then arising in this form. Imagine all yidams as being included in your own body. Wherever you live, that is the palace. That's the divine space. That's the mandala. But of course, dissolve the degenerate one, the one that's simply created by, in the Buddhist view, Karma and klesha, dissolve that. That's your karma? Yeah, now dissolve it. In other words, you don't need to carry that burden with you. You can dissolve it at any time. Release it into emptiness, arise, there. Blessing flowing, there, the divine flowing through, here and now, instantaneously. This is the cause of the pristine, pure realm when you are awakened. Cultivating this in the stage of generation practice is sowing the seeds for this spontaneously manifesting when you actually achieve enlightenment. It's taking the fruit as the path. That result. That resu- results. Hmm. Everyone. Okay, now everyone else meditates on one guru after another. One guru after another. That's very easy to do, you know. Mm. 
That results in adopting and rejecting spiritual mentors, almost as if you're dating, you know, just going from one to the next to the next. You know. <laughs> really. And it's probably saturated with the same kind of attachment. Not exactly the same, but simply attachment. So there will never come a time when they achieve cities. Moreover, by imagining your spiritual mentor, now we are speaking, this is teachings by Vajravarahi in the context of Vajrayana, teachings on Avalokiteshvara. So in this context, we all have to see the context. If in this context of Vajrayana practice, by imagining, conceiving, imagining, relating to your guru simply as a human being, then blessings do not arise. You expect to get blessings from another human being? That's lateral. There's no blessings there. They just... You learn from each other, that's fine. But it's not blessings. So imagine your spiritual mentor, your guru, in the form of Buddha Amitabha, the lord of this family, the lotus family, Buddha Apitama, Buddha Amitabha, Avalokiteshvara, Padmasambhava. That's the classic sequence. So imagine your guru in the form of Buddha Amitabha, the Buddha of boundless light, boundless light, right? Seated in the manner of the Lord of, uh, Lord of the Buddha family, he is the Lord of the family, the Lotus family, invite and invite this, the lineage, the whole lineage of gurus, through the lineage, and invite them, and they non-dually dissolve into your spiritual, primary spiritual mentor, mentor like snowflakes coming in contact with a hot stone, so with a lake with a hot stone, but you get the image, it's very clear. Thus think of this being as the synthesis of all gurus or spiritual mentors. So let's just pause there for a moment, because it's a very important point, and it's something not part of our culture, so it doesn't just come naturally to us. Um, so the question comes up, and I'm very much, uh, very, very much holding in my heart and mind the space of my awareness, people listening by, by podcast as well, and that is this whole issue of root guru, root guru, big term, root guru, lineage gurus, you know, those, those two. Sawe lama da, gyube lama, gyube lama. Oh, so I mentioned earlier something that I really, it needs another little addendum, and that is there are individuals who have the great good fortune. It's not simply karma, but they've cultivated from lifetime to lifetime a very meaningful relationship with great beings like Dinko Kinsirinpache, Chopke Tijinpache, and so forth and so on. And so there is some ripening in that. That's not just that the, the Lama likes them better. But we cultivate, you know, from, from lifetime to lifetime, and certainly through the course of a lifetime, we can cultivate increasingly meaningful relationship, authentic relation, pure relationship, with highly realized beings. Right? And there are some who have the great good fortune, the blessings, to be in close contact, receive personal guidance, you know, from these truly great beings, like Gyalakamapa and so on. And most people don't have that. Even in Tibet, most Tibetans didn't have in, you know, really close guidance from people like Gyawakamapa, Sakitizirinpoche, you know, and the other one, you know, by and large, they and, they and 5,000 people receiving the empowerment together. And then the, the great Lama heads off with his entourage, with his whole you know, retinue. And then you have your village Lama, you have the local Lama, the, the Lama from your nearby monastery, and so forth and so on. So the question can come up, is it possible... To, if you have great faith, real true reverence and true sense of devotion, and you feel your heart stirred, you feel blessings coming from some lama who you don't know personally, who's you don't feel that person knows you and giving you know, answering emails and so forth and so on that you can drop in on, can you have that person, a person like His Holiness Dalai Lama and so forth, can that person be your root guru, even though that person may not even know you, person isn't your name. Is that possible? The answer is unequivocally yes. And you don't need to write to the Dalai Lama's office. Hello, my name is Doge Mitterspeen, <laughs> and would you please ask the Dalai Lama whether he'd be my root guru? You know, you don't need to ask. You really don't need to ask. You don't need to ask any of them. If the faith is there, the devotion is there, the pure vision is there, then I can tell you the answer. How bold am I? But yeah, the answer could be yes. Can you even imagine this only say, I don't know you, who are you? I'm not going to be your guru. Can you imagine that? <laughs> There's no way that can happen. Impossible. So, the, so since that's impossible, then the contrary has to be the possible, and therefore the answer is yes. And not just this whole Nenis Dalai Lama, you know, so others as well. So the issue of root guru, I've heard over the you know, decades that I've been listening to teachings, uh, there have, there's not just one interpretation of who is your, if you encounter a number of spiritual teachers, 
Which one is your root guru? I've heard different, different answers to that. I'll just tell you the one that I find the most meaningful. And it is one of the, one of the, one of the interpretations that I've heard. And that is, we, if we're so fortunate as to meet multiple authentic teachers, spiritual teachers, um, and let's just imagine, let's just bracket it to those who are authentic. There are people who are misleading, let's not, let's not deal with them. Just authentic teachers who are passing on something authentic, they're teaching with pure motivation, their ethics is good, they're practicing, they're doing their very best to serve Dharma and to serve individuals who are coming to them for guidance. Okay? Let's just look at those. Everybody else, who cares? You know, out. Here. That, that group. So that's a good group. Now, among them, and you listen to teachings, perhaps you see this empowerment, maybe receive more personal guidance. And here's the response, and that is, among the teachers that you encounter, there may be one in particular whom just inspires you more, you feel blessing, you feel that connectedness. It's something very not quantitative. And again, we're assuming authenticity. That's kind of baseline. Let's assume that. But now, within that context, a person where you feel the very presence of this person is of benefit, the teachings of benefit, they speak to the heart, you put them into practice, you find them truly beneficial. You find there's something more, here's the quintessence of it, there's something more than information transfer here. If you want information transfer, go to the internet. I mean, gosh, you want information, what can't you get on the internet by now? You want straight information. I mean, there's, ah, oh, how many pages of material of really good Dharma teaching are there? on the internet now. This is all very new. But boy, it's just so, such an incredible wealth. That's without even cracking open one book. So if you want information transfer, go to the internet. You know, I mean, you could become a great scholar just by reading on the internet, let alone, you know, opening books. There's so much information available. But the guru-disciple relationship is more than simply transformation of, tra how do you say, transmission of information, data, knowledge, which you really can get from a book. You can get from the internet and so forth. You can get by listening to recordings and so on. So where it's so this qualitative feel, the sense of a real connection, the sense of faith, sense of admiration, the sense of reverence and devotion, the sense of receiving something that is more than just information, let's call it blessing, putting the teachings in practice, finally they truly speak to your heart and mind, they are truly helpful. It's like, a, like finding a physician whose treatment, medication, really is working for you. Okay, put those together, and if one kind of rises, then that's your root guru. But now what about the other ones? And maybe it's a great one, and maybe it's one who's not so well known. But that's not the point, you know, to trying to find the greatest Lama around and say, that's mine, as, you're trying to, as if you're trying to find the best car out there, the most expensive car, you know. My Lama is higher than your Lama. I heard a lot of that 40 years ago. People getting ego boosts. My lama is Kalu Rinpoche. Who is your lama? Oh, oh, that's very well for you. But <laughs> you know, it happens. It happened. My lama is Dingo Kenza Rinpoche. He's the guru of the Dalai Lama, by the way. <laughs> you know, we can turn we can turn anything into toxic waste. I was about to say bullshit, but no, again, I. <laughs> Don't want to deprecate those dear bulls. You know. We can turn anything toxic. That's what we you know, tend to do. When the mind's toxic, we'll turn anything toxic. But that's it. But then, in my case, of course, my root has been probably obvious for a long, long time. But then I think of, I think of Yatunabuchi, and really, when I was simply reflecting on his kindness, I can really say, literally, I've looked into my heart to say, you know, just sell to tell the truth. There is no one who's shown me a greater kindness than Yatunabuchi. No one. In my whole life, no one has shown me greater kindness. I cannot express it. So what to do then? Or is, is it kind of like spiritual bigamy? <laughs> 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 like, I like you, but I really like you too. <laughs> don't tell Don't tell you. <laughs> And it's possible you might. I think Miller Raper pretty much had one guru. Did he ever really st study with anybody besides the early, the early shamans? But you know, forget them. But after he connected with Marpa, it was pretty much Marpa, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. So for some people, I mean, it's one. And there's nothing wrong with that. It makes life a bit simple. But there's nothing wrong with it, especially if it's a master like Marpa. No problem. But then Atisha had 60 gurus. 
traveled, you know, traveled in Indonesia, traveled all over India, and so forth, 60 gurus. And so, and so, and there's just, it's no better or worse. It's not better to have 60 than one, not better to have one than 60, but what do you do when there's more than one? And I just have to say, it is helpful. I'm not going to say it's necessary, I don't know that, but I will say I know it's helpful. If there is one that you can just feel, this is my root guru. And in saying that, I'm not saying His Holiness has higher realization than other lamas that are my lamas. How would I, how would I possibly know? There's no reason to be fooling myself on that one. How would I know? I just know he's my root guru. That's all I need to know. But what about the other lamas? Sakya Damala. Oh, incredibly precious to me. She's my Dharma mother. She has been for 35 years now. So incredibly kind, homogeneously, unconditional compassion. I screw up, she's compassionate. I do well, she's compassionate. Whatever I do, she's compassionate. Really, she's just accepting, just homogenous. Boy, that really, it's nice to know somebody has that feeling for you. That, not just a feeling, but has that kind of attitude, don't you? She does. She's, made, she's manifested that 35 years. You kind of get to know somebody that way. And so, here's the teaching. It's classic teaching. If you can, if it, when the time is ripe and someone kind of forms to the mind, this is my root girl, then all the other ones you see as emanations of that. So to my mind, His Holiness manifested Gatrinambuchi for me. Manifested Dhammala, manifested Gisharapdan, manifested Kinlamrimpa, Gishinglawan Taiki. And the list goes on. All of these, the 99 faces, the 99 names of the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama being a name for Avalokiteshvara, Avalokiteshvara being name of Amitabha, Amitabha being a name of, of Samadabhadra, Samadabhadra being a name of your own pristine awareness. All of one nature. Now, one again important point. This is most of what I'm sharing here is not opinion, it's really lineage teachings that has a big blessing to it, deep authenticity to it. If one is really venturing into this practice authentically, then you don't, in your mind's eye, have a hierarchy. Uh, well, this is my really important lama. This one's pretty good, but that one's kind of like, you know, that only gets a B. And this one's not very well known, but he's, you know, really good at this, but, you know, he's C. And, the, and this one, well, you know, whatever. I mean, it's still good, you know, I don't mean to put you down, but you get kind of a D, you know. <laughs> you, if you do this, all it is is attachment. It's the same old, it's the same old nonsense of just, I like you a whole lot better, and I like you a lot. It's like having a whole series of, you know, boyfriend, girlfriends. And, you know, so then what's the point? It's just, that's just not guru yoga. It's just same old stuff. It's just samsara with a thin veneer of dharma on its surface. You know, what's the point? And so, when one really sees with insight here, you see from, as they say, classic teachings, if you're living in Tibet, your village lama who's you know, taking you page by page through the Bodhacharavatara, Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, just sitting you and taking you patiently through verse after verse, you know, and no great realization, no great erudition, but just out of kindness teaching you accurately, here is this sacred text, and I'm going to give you the transmission now. The Dalai Lama's gone. He may not, never come back to our village again, but here's what he was teaching and unpacks it for you. You see that one as being on the same level, the same taste, as His Holiness. This one empty of inherent nature, His Holiness empty of inherent nature. See, them all is one taste. You do that, now you've really moved into sac sacred territory. Now it's a sacred relationship. And the reverence is equal. Some inspire more, of course they do. Why shouldn't they? Some have deeper realization than others, of course. We're not being foolish here. Of course. But as they arise to us, homogeneously, Buddha's blessings coming in, coming in from all sides. So that's kind of important. All the gurus in one. One for all, all for one. <laughs> so think of this as being the synthesis of all the gurus. So there we go. There's it, nice and clear. Visualize yourself as the great compassionate one, the synthesis of all yidams. And now here we have the, 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 uh, the sadhana, so just read quite through it, all very familiar now. Upon a lotus and moon at your heart, imagine the six syllables circling around a white hri. Recite them as if you were reading them. Whoever you are with, think of them as your yidam, and imagine all sentient beings as your yidam, 
all now, not just your gurus, but now with this pure vision of your of the your your dharma companions and so forth, just developing pure vision all the way around. Remember, at the beginning, the light goes out, and you imagine all sentient beings achieve enlightenment, manifesting as Avalokiteshvara. So your pure vision has no bounds, as if you've already achieved enlightenment. You're taking the fruition as the path. Eventually, when you are enlightened, that will be a cause for your attaining a pure, perfectly pure retinue of disciples, developing pure vision for those fellow disciples, those in your circle, then sowing the seeds for that coming later. I would just th- mention this point. It's, it's true, but it's also very personally true for me. And that is how we know about Dharma, how we know about what the Buddha taught, who the Buddha was, how we know anything about Tara or Padmasambhava, how we know of anything about the Madhyamaka or about Dzogchen, about the Four Noble Truths, how we know about anything out of Dharma. Well, the, the short answer to that is, well, we can read books. And I know my, the first books that I read on Buddhism when, when I was at university. I took a one-year course on the culture of India, whole year. And one, one quarter, ten-week ten week period, was devoted to the religions of India. So I was interested, you know. I was 19 at the time. And so I took the course. So we did Indian history and politics and sociology, and then we had one quarter for the religions of India. And I learned something there about Buddhism. It's a very pessimistic worldview. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I learned. <laughs> you know, just everything's suffering, <laughs> everything's suffering. But you know, India's kind of a dirty place, and there's a lot of poverty there, and what can you do? I mean, if you live in India, you'd be depressed too. <laughs> you know? That was pretty much what I got from Buddhism. From, I, that's what I remember from that course. Buddhism is one of the really, in the words of Albert Schweitzer, Christianity is a positive, uplifting religion, whereas Buddhism is a downward, depressing, thumbs-down religion. Life-negating and life-affirming. Christianity is life-affirming, thumbs-up. God is good. God looked upon creation and said, it's good, it's good. You poor Buddhist, you missed the boat. God is good. Humans are created in the image of God. God is good. All is, everything's good. Everything is well with the world. God is good. Oh, you poor Buddhist, yeah, samsara sucks. That's your problem, you depressed Buddhist. You live in India. You know, so that's kind of the level it was left at, you know. And Albert Schweitzer, I think, a wonderful man, but boy, he did not understand anything outside of his own tradition. That happens a lot. And so, so we can read books. First book I read on Tibetan Buddhism was the Tibetan Book of the Great, of the great Liberation, Padmasambhava Dzogchen. Could hardly understand anything. Really, just so over my head. It was like, you know, a five-year-old reading quantum cosmology or whatever. Well, this is really groovy, I think. <laughs> I, I think so. I like it anyway. <laughs> you know, that was kind of what I came out with. Whatever that was, I think it's good. I don't have a clue. And don't ask me to synopsize it, because I wouldn't have a clue how to do that. But I think I wanted to devote the rest of my life to that. You know, it was all intuitive, because I couldn't understand And so just imagine then, if that's all you've got. Imagine, because now we have a lot of books. Ever had to have really a conversation with a book? So that's where the actual teachers come in. And the significance, I'm really just really speaking firsthand here, is that I don't know where I can be in the next life. I'm going to be someplace, I imagine. I will be someplace. But wherever I am, I want to see my gurus again. I don't want to be wandering around with no teacher. Books at best, but there are so many books. The internet is on. How can you find anything? I mean, apart from Google, how could you find anything in the internet? It's an ocean of just data. How would, it's, a, it's a haystack. How do you go into that haystack and pull out the needle of Dharma? How do you do that? How do you know whether it's authentic Dharma or complete nonsense? Kvach. How do you know? So that's why when in very traditional practice, and I am very traditional here, you go to the guru and you say, please, in all my lifetimes until I'm enlightened, please catch me with the hook of your compassion. Every lifetime. That means something. Because the notion of wandering around in samsara with no spiritual friend, no guide, that sounds to me like infinitely bleak.
everyone else dispenses with a mantra. <laughs> One would think they wrote this just for Tibetans or Westerners. Everyone dispenses with a mantra after reciting a single rosary and wonders, wonders if it will result in a city. <laughs> what, 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 what? <laughs> it's very cute, really. There will never come a time when they carry through a propitiatory retreat, the nyemba or the nyenshin. So, you know, some of you have done that, like the, the nyemba for Vajrayagini, Yamantaka, and so forth. It could take six weeks longer if you do it slowly. But they'll never do that because it would take too long. <laughs> they say, hey, I already... Really, it's, I mean, this is written, who knows, a thousand years ago? But, you know, when I was a kid, way back, you know, the dinosaur area, uh, you put your nickel in the candy machine. It was five cents. You put your nickel in, and you go boop, boop, and the candy bar just comes right out. You know, even faster than saying Omane Pemahum once around the rosary. You know, and so that's kind of what we want. We want to put, we want to put in the hundred thousand. We want to put in the rosary and say, okay, now cough up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> give me some good stuff. <laughs> okay, doesn't generally work that way. And now a nickel candy bar. Adala. So there will never come a time when they carry through with a propitiatory retreat. By transforming all sentient beings into your yidam, think of them as helping with the mantra. In other words, this is a nice, imagine them all reciting, all those around you, all sentient beings reciting Omani Pemehum. It's a very beautiful aspect of the taking refuge when you imagine your mother on your left, your father on your right, all females on your left, all males on your right, and there's the, there's the enlightened one and you imagine all of you taking refuge together, countless sentient beings all taking refuge together, then it empowers them taking refuge. Quite nice, quite meaningful. Oh yeah. Such a practice is said to result in immeasurable or incalculable benefits, and you develop great enthusiasm for your spiritual practice. So it goes from the chosen deity to the guru, or to the mantra, and then now let's go to the universe. The transformation of the universe, or really the physical world, or worlds, because in Tibetan often you can't tell whether terms are singular or plural. Very, very often. So if I were translating this, I translated this about 20 years ago. If I translate it now, the transformation of the physical worlds and their inhabiting sentient beings, because it's pluralistic. Buddhism is really fundamentally pluralistic. With the one ground being, of course, beyond one and many. So, the transformation of the universe and its inhabitants into the pristine nature is the presentation of appearances as the divine body. In other words, the entire worldview or entire world is seen as sacred, a manifestation of the divine. It's called what's it called? Panentheism, not pantheism, where the the world itself is is is, is God. Uh, but panentheism, panentheism is the the world pan is infused by the divine, saturated by the divine. That's Buddhist view, Mahayana Buddhist view, not pantheism, but panentheism. You find this in very deep mysticism Christianity, and I'm not going to give the list, but you find it a lot of other places as well. There, there is meaningful common ground. That's meaningful common ground. And then avenues, it's wonderful. Really, and you know, my Buddhist teachers have said this many times, it's wonderful that there are many avenues, different religions, some things that are not called religion, but many avenues to come to that. Different. Their doctrines are different. Their rituals are different. Institutions are different. But they can lead in that one direction. I believe that. Not everybody does. I'm not going to debate it, but I do. And so recognizing, so that's all the appearances as a divine body, recognizing all sounds as empty sounds of the speech of your chosen deity. In other words, the divine is speaking with, to you constantly in articulate and inarticulate sound. Or recognizing them as the sound of the mantra is the presentation of sounds as the divine speech. Those who are always feeding, here I'm using universal speech, those who are always in communion with the divine. No religion has a monopoly on that. And I'm not saying all religions are the same. I just, why, how would I know that? I don't know whether they're the same or not. Clearly, there's many, many different aspects to them. Doctrines are certainly different. There's no question about that. But as His Holiness loves to point out, let's focus on the common ground. Acknowledge, appreciate, not sweep away differences. They're very important. But what we attend to becomes our reality. And if we're looking on the common ground, 
that will loom large and will feel that sense of kinship. That kinship with people who have very different beliefs. They look different. They speak differently. Their rituals, their institutions, so forth, different, 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 different. And then, as His Holiness says, wherever I go, I always feel at home. Wherever I go, whether it's at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, whether it's meeting with Muslims, it's meeting with atheists, it's meeting with scientists, philosophers, I always feel at home, he says. So that's a good place to be. Recognizing all occurrences of memories and thoughts, that is, all activities of the mind, in your mind as the empty awareness of the mind of your Yadam, the chosen deity, is the presentation of memories, thoughts, as the divine mind. Constant communion with the divine. Moving on to the bottom of 58 with the main text. Those of you with, with little intelligence, I generally translate very literally, so it probably means that. Often it's called dull faculties. But, call it what you will, those with little intelligence who cannot visualize this, if, in other words, there's all kinds of intelligence. That's for sure. There's all kinds of intelligence. Yeah, in case you were thinking that's the only one. No, it's all, but that's just, that's just a fact. There are all kinds of intelligence. Einstein was a brilliant physicist, not a great dad. Outsta- you know, really outstanding in, in theoretical physics. A good musician, but he'd never make a living at it. And you know, other people are brilliant at, you know, there's just so many types of intelligence. I speak of cognitive intelligence, attentional, cognitive, emotional. Those are all real. Those are not airy-fairy at all. Some people are brilliant at analysis. Other people brilliant at imagination, and so forth and so on. And so this one type of intelligence is, let's call it, visualizing intelligence. It's one of many. I don't think it's very common nowadays. There's just too much noise in modernity. Just, just too much noise. The amount of information we're processing, compare that, if you can imagine, of being a nomad, intelligent, maybe even literate nomad, living in Tibet a hundred years ago. Where you may never leave Golok. Golok is kind of a remote region of eastern Tibet. Dujum Lingba never, never left Eastern Tibet. You know, I don't think he ever went to Central Tibet. I don't think so. You know, I just imagine the amount of information that we are processing every day, the kind of education, the massive amount of information we're getting, how is that not going to create an enormous amount of noise? So, so with all that noise, it's just hard to get any clear image at all. It's like having a television where it's just massive static Imagine you're trying to get into a, into a cha- channel where you get some clear images. You're just going to see snow. So, there we are. So, but such people, this, so, who cannot visualize this, should come to the certain conviction that you are the great compassionate one. Simply have this divine pride. Don't worry about the visualization. Whose body is white, with one face, four arms, ornaments, and clothing. Just think, that's who I am. Even if nothing comes to mind, doesn't matter. You could be sitting in a room in in a dark where you can't see any aspect of your body and you still know who you are. You wouldn't think, oh, I can't see myself. Maybe I'm Fred. I don't think so. (laughs) You'll know who you are. (laughs) Upon a moon at your heart, imagine the six syllables circling clockwise around a white tree. From its rays of light are emitted in all directions. From it, rays of light are emitted in all directions, and those light rays make offerings to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Ten Directions. They all turn into bodies of the Great Compassionate One and imagine them coming and dissolving into you like falling raindrops. Again, being upon being struck by your light, all sentient beings also turn into bodies of the Great Compassionate One and imagine them murmuring the six syllables. From time to time, observe the mind. Oh, he just drops that in. <laughs> From time to time, observe the mind that is doing the meditation. Oh, just with one sentence, he drops that in. Now we're coming to an end. The Hivajra Tantra, I looked at this, ah, so interesting that he put this in. Because, you know, this is a man of tremendous erudition. He's got who knows how many hundreds of texts he could be drawing from and citations from those texts. He chose this one, which I found very interesting. Very, very famous Tantra, very important Tantra. The Hevajra Tantra states, There is no meditation nor meditator. There is no deity nor mantra. 
in the nature that is devoid of conceptual elaboration, the deities and the mantras are perfectly present. The beings, Vairochana, Akshobhya, Amogasiddhi, Ratnasambhava, and Amitabha. These are the five Buddha families, the personifications of five facets of primordial consciousness. Each one having his own mantra, and so forth. And when you're resting in the nature of awareness, free of all conceptual elaboration, all thoughts, all visualization, all aspirations, when you're just resting in Rikpa, all the deities are perfectly present, spontaneously present. And then you come to see that as they manifest, they are manifesting simply as expressions of, refractions of the light of your own pristine awareness. And so the source of all the deities, all the forms which we so easily reify and frankly idolize, very easy to do, very easy to do. As soon as there's reification, it's kind of idolatry. Gotcha. That's exactly where the, the flow stops. We lock it in. So that's why in Islam, for example, I'm, again, I'm speculating because I'm not, I'm not a scholar of this at all, but really profound caution to see it, to put it lightly, profound caution against any type of imagery of the divine. I think that, that's true. That's true. I mean, go into a mosque, look for images of Muhammad or let alone of, you know, of Allah. You're not gonna, of course, you're not going to find it. Why? Is that just kind of a different tradition? Well, maybe they're recognizing a important issue there. We do tend to idolize. We do tend to reify, grasp onto, and then grasping onto, my image is better than your image. You know? And the Buddha himself, early times, put in the Pali Canon. The Buddha himself was aware that people very easily idolize him, reify him, grasp onto him. And so he discouraged that. So there we are. And, oh, time to finish. Finally, last one. The primary treatise on the fivefold practice states in an immutable fortress, your own body as the deity's body, if this is not secured for the king, if you've not, if you've not established a sacred space of your own body, then it is not secured for the king. Well, the king, of course, is your pristine awareness. The assemblies of Dakinis will not gather, so diligently regard your body as the chosen deity. May there be virtue. May there be virtue. So he's presenting this anomalously as a prelude to the next chapter, which is on Shamatha. We'll go there in due course. Tomorrow we will have time for discussion. And I'll say right now, I would really like to especially invite those of you who are having your interviews with Glenn. I really don't want these eight weeks to go by and we be strangers that I don't even know your name by the time we finished. So I want to especially invite questions, comments, insights, sharing experiences. Because um, I've gotten to know 36 of you in this way, one-on-one. -on -one. But I'd like to see that we are all know each other to some extent. Okay. So it's a little bit after 6, six o'clock, so let's continue practicing. But now we have a context in which now to kind of a, really kind of like a pot or a vessel into which to pour the shamatha, the vipassana, and the mahamudra. And that's what we'll be pouring for the next six weeks. So good. Good night. <laughs>